Let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 11. If you are three years old through third grade, you can slip out now to our our children's church service that we'll be having. If you're a visitor with us and you have children three years old through the third grade, you can, uh, if you'd like them to join the children's church, they can slip out right that way, and then you can pick them up in this hallway immediately following the service. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 11. There's a pattern in the early church as they greeted one another. In the early days, as history tells us, that as they would greet each other on the road, as they would meet on the Lord's day, they would greet each other with the greeting, He is risen, He is risen indeed. I've been waiting all morning, Sean stole my uh, greeting this morning when he opened up, and so I've been waiting all morning to greet our church family this way, and so let's begin. He is risen. risen I'm so thankful to be able to stand before you this morning on this Easter Sunday to unfold the Word of God for the greatest event in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Chronicled in all four Gospels, it is the apex of our faith, the crowning achievement of the power of God displayed on the life of Jesus through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross and then the power to raise Christ bodily from the grave on the third day. This morning, we haven't turned to a resurrection account in the Gospels. Rather, I've had you turn to a statement from Christ that he makes regarding the power that he holds in the resurrection. Because other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ noted in each one of the Gospels, the other most prominent resurrection event in the Scriptures is given for us in John chapter 11 in the raising of Lazarus. Jesus gives us the unbelievable statement in John chapter 11 and verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That verse is my text this morning in order to understand the context of why Jesus said this at this time and in this way. We need to understand the context of John chapter 11 And then I'd like to bring a message for you this morning entitled, I am the resurrection and the life. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word this morning, I do pray that you would give us grace to see your word on fire. That we would recognize the life that the word is, that the life that you give through the preaching of the gospel. And I pray that we would be fueled anew with the vision and understanding of what the resurrection means for us today. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. We find Jesus in the middle of his teaching ministry in John chapter 11. He's teaching in a city called Bethany. And in chapter 11 and verse 1, there's a phrase that says this, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Jesus was teaching, excuse me, just a few miles away. And and so the family of Lazarus sends word to Jesus saying, listen, Lazarus is sick. Lazarus, the one whom you love. No doubt Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, had seen Christ heal the sick as they were followers of Jesus. No doubt they had heard story after story of Christ coming into town and healing all those who had sicknesses and ailments. And so, out of hope, they send word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. Jesus was very close to this family. 
We see that reflected in verse 3. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. We also see this reflected in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This wasn't just some random family that Jesus was going to go to. This was a family that he knew well, that he loved well. But yet Jesus chose to remain where he was for another two days after he got word. Look with me in verse 6. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. God had revealed to Jesus that Lazarus would die. And the Father had revealed to Jesus through through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that it would be this moment that Jesus would prepare His disciples to receive the resurrection that He would have in just a few short months. It was the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead that would serve to both give God glory in the greatest way and strengthen the faith of the disciples. He actually gives you this purpose in verse 14. Look at chapter 11 and verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Some looking to reject the veracity of this scriptural account would suggest that Lazarus never totally died. Everybody just thought that he was dead. There's no doubt that Lazarus was in fact dead. He had been sealed in the tomb for four days. Look at verse 17. When Jesus came to Bethany, when Jesus came to the tomb, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. I don't mean to be gross, but what happens... When the body has been dead for four days, well, three days after death, the body enters into something called active decay where the body starts to actually break down. His tissues had broken down. His body was exhibiting an unpleasant odor. Something called putrefaction had begun. And it's important for us to understand this because it's not as though Lazarus was just sleeping in the grave and Jesus woke him up. His body was fully decayed. I want you to recognize something very important before we get to, there there are so many application points before we get to Jesus' statement in verse 25, but I think it'd be important for us to, to pause and to look at the request that Mary and Martha made specifically to Jesus. The request was this, please come and heal Lazarus. And it was only two miles away. Jesus could have picked up and walked directly to Lazarus' house and healed him and kept him from dying. However, Jesus chose to work out the Father's perfect timing for his glory and for the spiritual growth of his children by waiting. Waiting to answer the request that Mary and Martha made of him. Friends, how many of us have been begging God to come to answer a request now. How many of us are, are in what we would call a holding pattern? Lord, I've got this issue in my life and I've been praying and you're, you, you're, you're just not answering it in the, in the timing that I want you to. Lord, would you come now to relieve this? Lord, would you, would you intervene in this situation now to save this loved one? And yet for some reason, God has chosen to wait. 
We pray and expect him often to step in in immediately, but rarely, if ever, is that the case. Instead, friends, God works in his perfect timing. Why? So that his glory may be displayed and so that your faith may be solidified. So Jesus, in his perfect timing, waited for two days and traveled to see Lazarus. And while he was waiting, Lazarus died. I'd like for you to note the effect that the death of Lazarus had on three people. The effect of Lazarus dying is shown in the effect that it had on Jesus and on Mary and on Martha. So let's look at Jesus first. Obviously, in verse 3, as we saw, Jesus loved Lazarus as a dear friend. In verse 5, Jesus loved the entire family very deeply. Look down at verse 32. Verse 32 of chapter 11. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That means that he was grieved deeply in his heart because his friend had died. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And when Jesus saw the tomb where his dear friend laid, he was moved and he wept. Verse 36, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Lord, did Lazarus really have to go through this? There's some discussion as to why Jesus wept, but I would suggest to you this morning that Jesus wept out of a heart of grief for his friend. I think verse 36 makes that clear. Lazarus had to navigate the painful waters of dying before passing through to the release of death. Many of you know this same pain and grief as you've watched someone near you Watch someone you love pass through those same waters. Many of you know I love Pilgrim's Progress, and the process of dying is pictured as Christian and hopeful pass through the great river on the way to the celestial city. And you can, you can hear in the way that this is written the grief that comes on Christian as he's navigating those last moments before death because many of us it's not the act of dying that we fear it's the process of getting to that point isn't it and here as Jesus has recognized the process that Lazarus had to go through being sick for so many days before dying he grieves as he also grieves the loss of his friend I want to read for you just a quick portion from Pilgrim's Progress, the same process of dying that's mentioned in this this story. John Bunyan writes, Now further I saw that between them, the two boys, and the gate to the celestial city, excuse me, the two men, there was a river. There was no bridge to go over. The The river was very deep. That's the process of dying, passing through the river. But there was no bridge to go over. At the sight, therefore, this river, the pilgrims were much stunned, but the men that went with them said, you must go through or you cannot come to the gate of the city. 
the pilgrims then began to ask if there was no other way. Which they answered, yes, but there have not been any save two, Enoch and Elijah, who have been permitted to tread that path since the foundation of the world. Nor shall any until the last trumpet shall sound. The pilgrims then, especially Christian, began to despond in their minds and look this way and that, but no way could be found by them by which they might escape the river. When they asked the men if the waters were all the same depth, they said no. Yet they should not help them in that case. For said they, you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of that place. Then they walked up to the edge of the water and entering, Christian began to sink. And crying out to his good friend, Hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. Then said Hopeful, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it's good. And here, when you are shepherding someone who's in the process of dying, Often the grief and pain on the caretaker is to be hopeful and to say Jesus is good. God is good. The end is near. And many of you have sat by and seen a loved one transition from this life into the next and you understand the grief that overtakes you in that moment and you've played that role of hopeful in your loved one's life. And you say... Pastor Joe, why would you bring all that up? Because that's where Mary and Martha are. They sat by Lazarus' bedside. They watched him navigate those waters. In, 11, in chapter 11 and verse 20, Martha was an anxious worrier who ran out to meet Jesus. She's the type A, the go-getter of the family, who's always worrying, always busying about. We see a picture of her in Luke 10. Where Mary and Martha, where Jesus comes into their house and, and the Lord said, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about so many things. And in verse 20, Martha runs out to Jesus. Look with me at verse 20 at the question that she asks. Lord, verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I wouldn't have had to gone through what I went through. Lazarus wouldn't have to go through, gone through what he went through. Mary, in contrast to Martha in verse 20, was seated in the house, more, more uh, contemplative, out of deep grief and depression after Lazarus' death, didn't come out until Jesus comes to the house of Mary. But they both asked the same question in two different ways. One out of anxiety, worry. One out of deep grief. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The question is, Lord, why weren't you here? Why did this have to happen this way? Verse 32, Mary fell at his feet, weeping, sobbing. Friends, people respond to grief and loss differently. One is not better than the other, just different based on different personalities. For some, when grief and loss hits, they clam up. For some, when grief and loss hits, they get angry. For some, they break down and weep. 
And Mary and Martha responded in two opposite ways to the loss of Lazarus. Lazarus. And each one of you has come into this Easter service this morning in your own unique way that you are responding to the trials in your life. James would call these trials of various kinds or diverse trials and temptations. That every single person in here is going through different trials in a different way and you're responding in your own unique way that God has created you And inside of that moment, whether you've just lost someone, whether you're in the midst of of hardship or hurt, whatever it would be, sickness, that as you are responding, the question is, what answer does God have for that situation? Because it was in response to the worry and anxiety that Mary and Martha felt, the grief and loss that Jesus was experiencing, the wailing and the funeral that was there, that Jesus offers a statement of hope. And that's John eleven twenty five. 25. We can't just pull this verse out. We have to understand that Jesus is offering this statement in the midst of all of these raging emotions, in the midst of grief and loss, in the midst of funeral wailers wailing. Jesus tells Martha in verse 23, Lazarus will be raised from the dead. Look at verse 23 with me. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus didn't negate her her statement because like a good Jew, Martha believed that Lazarus in the last day would be raised with all those who would be raised. But Jesus takes that concept and he says, Martha, what you believe is right, but it's not totally complete because his statement in verse 25 gives us his statement of hope that wraps up the power of the resurrection as we're going to see it this morning. Look with me down at John 11 and verse 25. Martha says, yes, I know in this far off moment in this This time that one day we will experience Lazarus will be raised from the dead. Kind of like, well, how does that help me right now? How does that help me in my grief? And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You see, Jesus wasn't calling Martha to say, listen, everything's going to be okay because I'm going to raise him to life here in just a minute. No, no, it's not in that far off day. It's not just in that far off day that you can find hope. Martha, I'm going to raise, if you just wait five minutes, everything's going to be okay and you're going to see Lazarus again. That's not what he says. He anchors her hope. He anchors the power that she can trust in, in himself. He says, Martha, just trust me. You find hope in me. I am the resurrection and the life. We're going to look at this statement in three parts. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And then our response to those two statements that Jesus makes. Both of these statements that he makes, just two introductory notes, they're both statements of exclusivity. 
Notice that he doesn't say, I am one part of this, or we are this, or, or I am one of many people who have this power. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's a statement of exclusivity. John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 7 and 9, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. Just a few short chapters later, John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Exclusive statements about Jesus alone. And here in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. It's a statement of exclusivity, friends. There is no one other than Jesus who can give you life. You have no hope outside of Christ. He is exclusive in his claim to deity. It's Jesus alone. Not only is a statement of exclusivity, these are statements of divinity. Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian and you've heard people say, well, if you read the Bible, nowhere does Jesus come out and say, I am God. Friends, it's just simply not the case. Because if you read carefully in this verse, verse 25, the first two words are a statement of absolute divinity. I am Ego eimi is the Greek. It's the word that, that, it's the same phrase that's used in the Hebrew back in the burning bush when Moses says, who are you, God? What is your name? And God says, I am that I am. And Jesus here equates himself with Yahweh. I am the resurrection and the life. He's announcing to everyone gathered at the tomb of Lazarus that day that he had the right and authority to claim the title of Almighty God. I am exclusive, divine. And he makes two statements that are exclusive and anchored in his deity. Number one, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. This word resurrection means taking something that's dead and breathing life into it. And it's only through the power of Christ that the dead can come to life. Christ possesses all power. He's omnipotent. There's nothing too hard for for God. The angel announces this truth to Mary when she says, how can this be since, since I'm a virgin? And Gabriel says, nothing is impossible with God. You see, friends, resurrecting something from the dead isn't a matter of simply putting new blood into the body or getting the brain to work again with electricity. Life actually needs to be infused into that body once again. Even with the advent of modern technology, it's impossible for us to infuse life into a body once it's died. But with this statement, Jesus is making it clear. He is declaring that he is the giver of life. The resurrection is not some abstract doctrine that we believe in the Bible The power of the resurrection is seen in the person of Jesus. Warren Wiersbe comments this way, when you're sick, you want a doctor, not a medical book. When you're being sued, you want a lawyer, not a law book. Likewise, when you face your last enemy, death, you want the Savior and not just a doctrine written in a book. In Jesus Christ, every doctrine is made personal friends the resurrected resurrection isn't just a fact it's a person it's found through jesus 
And it's through the power of the person Jesus that the doctrine of the resurrection becomes personal for you and for me. The resurrection means so much more than just physical life into a physical body. There are actually two types of life that must be given to any person for them to spend eternity with God. We see it reflected in John chapter 3 with a question from Nicodemus. We see it given to us in explanation in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes through the, to the church at Ephesus and says that only through the power of Christ can someone who's spiritually dead be brought to spiritual life. Not just physical death to physical life, but spiritual death to spiritual life. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And then he goes to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead, hath made us alive together with Christ. That Jesus says, I am the resurrection is through the Spirit of Christ. That is not only the physical body made alive, but the dead spirit made alive. By grace you have been saved. You say, Pastor Joe, I don't understand that. What is that like? John chapter 3. Turn back just a few pages to John chapter 3. I'd like you to see this. A man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus and asks him this same question. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you are spiritually dead. If you're not a Christian, that's why when you read the Bible, the Bible seems dead to you. It's why when you're around Christians, something seems a little bit off. It's why you feel uncomfortable with, with the words of these hymns. It's why when the word of God is proclaimed, your heart is stirred. It's because your, your soul is, is dead. It's, it's not receptive to the truth of God. And there was a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus, chapter 3. He was a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, these signs, unless God is with him. Verse 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus goes on to explain in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's physical birth, and of the Spirit, that's spiritual birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. No one's here who hasn't been born physically. Every single one of us has been born physically. But what Jesus is bringing out here with Nicodemus is that not only do you need a physical birth, friend, but you need a spiritual birth. You need a resurrection of your spirit from death to life. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The, spirit, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. In your first birth, the moment of conception, your body is made alive. And then you are born in the flesh. And the resurrection of the Spirit is that moment 
when God breathes life into your soul and your dead soul is raised from death to life. Ephesians 2, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins have been made alive. And the only way that that's possible is through the Spirit of Christ. Friends, you can try all sorts of things to try to wake your soul up. You can try alcohol. You can try relationships. You can try drugs. You can try prescription medications. You can try money, you can try jobs, you can try hard work, you can try laziness. All of these things will fall short of bringing the life into your life that you need. The awakening of your soul, because it's only through the Spirit of Christ that you are made alive. Because he says, I am the resurrection. Both physical life and spiritual life. Through the power of Jesus, your dead body will be resurrected. Through the power of Jesus, your dead soul can be made alive in Christ. He says, I am the resurrection. Secondly, he says, I am the life. Turn back to John chapter 11. I am the resurrection. And that word and there joins the I am with the second statement. I am the resurrection. I am the life. All life finds its source in God. Everything that is alive has received life from God. Psalm 36 and verse 9, for with you is the fountain or the source of life. God is the very source of every life. When he says, I am the life, we see first of all that only through the power of Christ can we find eternal life. John chapter 3 continues as he walks through with Nicodemus. The Spirit has to awaken your soul. The Spirit has to breathe life. How does that happen? Well, the Spirit moves where he wishes. The Spirit has to awaken your soul to bring life to your soul. And then in verses 14 through 16 in John chapter 3, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may have this, this phrase, eternal life. Not just physical life, but eternal life. And then the verse we all know well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You say, why do I need eternal life? Because, friend, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Your sin has made you judged before God. And Jesus references that in in chapter, in chapter 3 and verse 15, as Moses raised a serpent in the wilderness, what was happening, the children of Israel had gathered in the wilderness. The snakes, fiery serpents of judgment had come among them, were biting them, and any, anyone who was bit would die unless they looked to the serpent that Moses raised on the bronze pole. And it was a symbol that just as though we look to Christ, we are forgiven of our sins We are cleansed from our unrighteousness. Then when we look to Jesus for forgiveness, we find eternal life. We see this pictured again in John chapter 4. A woman of Samaria comes to draw water and Jesus says, give me a drink. She said, why do you talk to me? I'm a woman, you're a man, I'm from Samaria, you're a Jew. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask me and I would have given you living water. 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to, here's our phrase again, eternal life. Friend, have you come seeking Christ this morning? Have you come recognizing that you need something and you're looking for the answer? Jesus says, I offer living water that will well up into eternal life when you look to him in faith. But not only eternal life, he says, I am the life. This also means that that through Jesus, we actually find purpose in this life. Because it's only through the power of Christ that we can find eternal life, and it's only through the power of Christ that we can find purposeful life. Because, friend, when does eternal life start? That's an interesting question a lot of people don't think about. When you become saved, when does that eternal life start? Does it start when you die? No, it starts when you call out to Christ in faith, when you claim him as your savior, when you, when you lay hold of him as your rescuer. At that moment of salvation, Christ alone, not my works, but Christ, it's that moment that my eternal life begins. It's that moment that that void in my heart is filled. We say it often here at Community that we have a hole in our lives the size of Christ and only Christ can fill it. That job promotion that you thought would satisfy ended up not being what you hoped for. That new car that made you so happy now has a scratch in it or a dent or maybe the next models come out. The feelings that you had for your spouse when you first got married have started to fade. You've been longing for a spouse so long God has not seen fit to grant that desire in your heart. You want children. God has not given them to you. You didn't want children. God has seen fit to bring them into your life. Whatever the case it may be in your life this morning, what is it that you are seeking to fill that hole with? Because Christ says, I am the life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your purpose can be fulfilled and you can find purpose in this life by recognizing that your eternal life began at the moment of salvation. Meaning that you have the very presence of God dwelling inside of you. And you find the fulfillment and purpose in your life by living in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, living in holiness, living as a dedicated follower of Christ, realizing that you actually have the option of having the purpose in your life of living out the attributes of God, having them shine out in your life in every aspect, thus living to the glory of God. The eternal life given to you from Jesus secures your place by his side for all of eternity, and it gives you purpose while you're here. You now have someone to live for. You now have a way to reflect God through your life. There's no resurrection outside of Christ. There's no life outside of Christ. But the question still remains, how is this eternal life secured? Look at the second half of verse 25 with me. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He anchors her hope in himself. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The first aspect of this 
statement of security, of how we apprehend resurrection and life, is found in that first word, whoever. You see, the power that Christ offers is offered without limits. Spurgeon, in his sermon on this passage, said this phrase. He says, I am deeply in love with that word, whoever. That it's an open call. That if you're here this morning and you're under the, the preaching of the word of God, this call is for you, whoever believes. You don't have to be of a certain race, of a certain nationality. You don't have to be of a certain age. You don't have to be in a certain denomination. There is no limit to God's open gospel call. No matter what you've done or who you are, you fall into this category this morning. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this this statement from Christ explaining how this resurrection and this life is secured begins with the limitless call of God's power to salvation. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, in his early lives was a very wicked man who was a captain on a boat, on a boat that transported slaves from Africa God gloriously saved him. He became a pastor, and on his deathbed, he offers this quote just before he died. He was having trouble seeing. He couldn't see well. His memory was fading. And he said the following, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Because the gospel call is open to whoever believes. And that's the second part. Not only is it offered without limits, it's granted by faith. Whoever believes. The power from Christ is granted only by faith. Jesus does not say whoever serves or whoever gives or whoever works, but rather whoever believes. Your salvation is not granted to you because of your righteousness or because of your good works. This salvation is granted to you because of Christ's work on the cross for you. Your responsibility is simply to believe. Faith is the bridge that takes you to Christ. Every other bridge will fail. But what are you to believe? Is it just belief? Is it just faith in a vacuum? Is it just some sort of blind faith and and it's just this call to belief? What am I specifically to believe? Whoever believes, look at the next phrase, in me. This power is granted by faith in Christ alone. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is our only hope. Resurrection. Jesus is our only life. Every faith has an object, and your faith is only as strong as the object of your faith. Your prayer can't save you. Even faith is not the end. Jesus saves you, whoever believes in me. 
I want you to recognize, thirdly, not only is this power offered without limits, it's granted by faith in Christ alone, but this power actually gives purpose to death. There's a very simple statement, just three words in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, and then the next three words, though he die. Jesus brings in the reality of death. Statistics don't lie, friends. 100% of people die. Though he die. When Jesus steps in, though, the power of death is broken. No longer does death cause eternal separation from God. No longer does death cause eternal separation from loved ones who have gone on before us. For the unbeliever, death is punishment. But for the believer, death is access to the very house of God. For the unbeliever, death is an execution. But for the believer, death is simply the removal of the sinful shell. For the unbeliever, death is the beginning of eternal torment. But for the believer, death is the beginning of eternal bliss. For the unbeliever, death is to be found under the curse of sin. But for the believer, death is to be found under the covenant blessing of God's loyal love. You see, for the believer, this concept of death is not the end, but it's just the beginning. For the believer who has has laid hold of Christ, who who have come to Christ, the believer who has come to Christ and asked for forgiveness from sins. For the believer, death is that moment when the shell of sin is finally broken and access into eternity is granted. And though you may fear the shadow of death, if Christ is your possession, you need not fear the moment of death. You need not fear eternity as a child of God because Jesus says, I am the resurrection, I am the life. Though that final turn of the key to open heaven's door more than likely will be painful for all of us, The entrance into glory far outweighs our suffering in this present world because he says, though he die, yet shall he live. It's the power of Christ that gives hope for the future. As the Puritan Thomas Brooks said, and you've heard me quote at many funerals, death is not the death of man, but the death of his sin. In this moment where Mary and Martha are overwhelmed with grief because their brother is gone, Jesus calls their attention to himself and he says there's hope because for the believer, through death, we gain entrance into eternal life. Life has not ended at death for the believer. It has just begun. Those of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone on before us are more alive now than they ever were on this earth. Eternal life offered to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ gives immeasurable hope for the future. Because as we look to Christ, we realize that in the moment of his resurrection, 
He conquered the sting of death. There is no more pain in death to fear if you're a Christian, but only the presence of God and eternal bliss for all of eternity. The reminder that one day, like Him, we will be raised in glorified bodies, free from sin, free from death. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And so in that moment, we see Jesus calling out as a beautiful picture and raising Lazarus from the dead. Look with me at verse 38. Jesus said, deeply moved again, He came to the tomb. It was a cave when the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, is there any question whether or not Lazarus was dead? Said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. For all that are dead, when called by Christ, become alive. His hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him. And let him go. Friend, what a beautiful picture of what happens to the unsaved when God breathes life into their soul. When they claim Christ for salvation, he calls them forth to life. And that life then brings hope. The power of the resurrection isn't found in some far off moment to come in the future. It's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Unsaved person that's here, have you called out to Christ for salvation? Brother or sister in Christ, have you seen the power of Christ giving you purpose in your life to live for him? That your life on this earth is to be lived reflecting his character, finding purpose in giving him glory in everything that you do. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the power of the resurrection as seen in the pages of Scripture. We trust your Holy Spirit to take the truth of Scripture and apply it to hearts and minds. We do pray that if there's one here who's not a Christian, who has come on this Easter Sunday, that they would recognize that their sin separates them from you, but that the grace of Christ, the cross of Calvary, offers them forgiveness. I pray that in this moment that you would breathe life into their soul, that they would see the truth for what it is, 
that they would believe in Jesus alone for salvation. And for the Christian that's here that has not been living in the power, the life that you provide, that you would help them to understand the presence of God that's inside of them, empowering them to live a holy, sanctified life, glorifying you in all that they say and all that they do. Friend, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we're going to take a moment of just response and reflection as the instrument plays for you to do business with God in your heart. How has the Spirit of God put His finger on your heart this morning? If you're not a Christian, you can call out to God in the quietness of the moment. Through Jesus alone, you'll find forgiveness. Christian, live in the power of the resurrection, recognizing his life is in you. You can live faithfully through that life.